Hello and welcome to the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as a psychotherapist, hosting this podcast is a natural fit. Every week, I will invite you into my therapy room where I shall be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice, and they will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. At the end of each episode, I will be joined by my two, yes, two psychotherapist daughters, who will reveal their thoughts and broader insights about my therapy session. It really is three therapists for the price of one. It's definitely worth a listen. So Alistair Campbell, I am thrilled that you've joined me on my podcast and you are a journalist, a broadcaster, an author, a podcaster, a strategist and an activist. And the things I take from that is the line that connects all of your roles is that you want to fight to improve the way we live in the world today. Hmm. That's a nice positive way of thinking about it. I think so. Yeah, I think I do. I think that that's what my kind of activist sense comes from. Uh, I've done it in different ways at different periods of my life. I did start out in my professional life thinking that journalism was the way to do it. I also thought journalism was a lot of fun, which it was. You're quite good at having fun, aren't you? Yeah, most of the time. I have a lot of, I do have a lot of fun, yeah. I have a lot of bad times, but I tend to enjoy a lot of things. In some ways, it feels like an anger to fight for something that's better. What do you think the source of that is? Where if you look back, maybe at your childhood, your environment or an experience, what is the thing that set that on fire, do you think? Oh, I think it's very hard to answer that because there's lots of things can pop into my head of things that I've thought, things that I've felt, incidents I can remember. Uh, so I grew up in Yorkshire in Keithley till I was about 11. And my dad was a vet, but we lived in this very nice house up at the top of the town. And to get into town, I had to walk through an area that was pretty rough, mainly Asian immigrant community. And I think I was conscious very, very early on that they were a lot poorer than we were. I was also conscious at school of there being children there who were a lot poorer than we were. In fact, funny enough, I was talking yesterday, I, I've, I've kept next to no friends from most of my childhood, but I have kept my best friend from primary school. Have you? That's so nice. Yeah, he was from a much more working class background. We were pretty middle class, my dad being a vet so forth and living in this really nice house and stuff but i remember sometimes being with him and thinking we're very different even though we're very similar and i think i've always felt a greater empathy with people like him than people like the people that i first came across when i went to university at cambridge i think i felt a greater empathy with those people in the pakistani community that i was walking through than maybe other people that I might have come across. And I think then in journalism, I wasn't, I wasn't very political in, in, a, in a clearly defined way, actually, until I became a journalist. And then particularly uh, meeting Fiona, my partner, and her family who are very political. I always knew I was Labour. 
I didn't define it as such, probably until probably until my, my early to mid-20s. And what I get from that is that there was a, an awareness of inequalities and that that gave you a discomfort. And then how that has played out has been very shaped by what's happened since, I guess, by meeting Fiona and then journalism and then meeting people and then working for Tony Blair. I don't know if there was stuff in between. There was lots in between. I think, I think the journalism definitely, funny enough, it was a... It was one of Tony's predecessors, Neil Kinnock, who I I actually met on a, a really bizarre kind of situation. I was becoming much more political, but I was a general news reporter. And when Neil was Labour leader, the Mirror, they asked Neil and his family to get all their relatives together. And the Mirror put them up in this hotel in London. There were about 100 of them, all coming up from Wales and around different parts of the world. And the, and the centrepiece of the weekend, we're going to get them all on the roof of this hotel and just do a huge picture of here's Neil's whole clan kind of thing. This is his tribe, yeah. Yeah. And my job, I wasn't writing the thing at all. My job was basically to be around and make sure that no other newspapers found out what we were up to and what we were doing and protect this exclusive, as it were. You're the bouncer. Yeah. and But it meant that I had, I'll tell you exactly when it was, it was the weekend of the Bradford City Fire. Oh, my God. Yeah, because it was also an early immersion in me of kind of spin doctoring because when the fire happened, Maxwell, who at the time owned the mirror, he phoned up and, and said he thought that he and Neil Kinnock should fly to Bradford together, <laughs> which was clearly a truly awful idea, which I knew straight away was an awful idea. Neil would have nothing to do with it. I think Neil went up there later on his own or, you know, without any of that sort of stuff. So I had to kind of manage this mad idea and keep Neil out of it and keep Maxwell at bay and, and so forth. But Neil was somebody that I talked to, I got friendly with from there really, and got very, you know, friendly with his family. His kids were then teenagers. And I think I I realised through him that I had to make the step from journalism into political journalism. I moved full-time into Westminster, covering Parliament, covering election campaigns and things like that. And then eventually John Smith died. Tony Blair asked me to work for him. But I think the thing about inequality, I think it's more about maybe that's too positive a way to look at it. I've always hated snobbishness, hierarchy, class, people feeling that they're superior because of their class. I've always had a thing about that. Looking down upon. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've never quite accepted that. Um, Ricky Gervais had one of the funniest lines of ever last year during when Johnson and Rhys Mogg and the other kind of Etonian crew were screwing everything up. And I remember Ricky Gervais did a tweet saying, when is this country going to learn that the words went to Eton should qualify you for absolutely nothing? I kind of feel that. So I've, I've always been very anti-hierarchical, but I think it does come from a belief that we should at least strive for some sort of equality. We know we're not, you know, we, we can be cleverer than other people, we can be better at exploiting what the world gives us than other people. It doesn't mean that we're automatically, because we're born into a certain level of society, that we're somehow better. And that your background or your class isn't who you are. Yeah. But that we're all innately human and deserve to be treated with value and respect and potential, I guess. Yeah, I think the potential is the key. I agree. But if you don't have that as your environment to begin with, you don't trust in it in yourself. So the question I always ask a guest and this is, I guess, particularly focusing on your external world and how that relates to your internal world. 
is tell me about a challenge you're facing or have had to overcome. It's funny, there are two that pop into my head immediately, and they both relate to alcohol. The first one relates to me, and the second one relates to my son, Callum. So I had this pretty full-on psychotic breakdown in the 1980s, where one of the consequences of which was that I was advised to stop drinking. And I stopped drinking for 13 years. Probably of a view that I was a recovering alcoholic, but then having dabbled a bit uh, 13 years after I'd stopped and not being terribly bothered by it, not getting drunk, not having one drink and feeling I had to have another, that was a quite an important step on a, on a journey that I hadn't even really acknowledged where what I'd done in 1986 when I had the breakdown was that having got better and having felt stronger because I was succeeding in this business of stopping drinking, I could have felt I'd done what I needed to do. But actually, what I hadn't done was to recognise and face up to whatever it was that had driven me to be a problem drinker in the first place. And I don't think that really came until 2005, after I left Downing Street, when I was in a really bad place. I think the only way to define it is self-harming. I was punching myself a lot. I was banging my head against a wall quite a lot. Oh, wow. And that's when I started to see somebody and really understand that I was dealing on and off with very, very, very bad depression, which I think in the early days leading up to my breakdown, I dealt with through drink. And then I dealt with through this obsessive need and desire not to drink, which I probably replaced with an obsessive need and desire to work all the time. And that just became a more lucrative, more productive addiction. But it's still an addiction, isn't it? Busyness is an addiction. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I feel very moved by your honesty and openness and the kind of understanding that you're wanting to get out in the world about addiction, which is that it isn't the drunk who just wakes up and drinks all day. There are many forms mm. of addiction. But actually, the, the question isn't what is the addiction, whether it's work, drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, looking at your phone. The question is, what is the pain? And until you deal with the source of the pain, mm. you can't deal with the addiction. But also that we have this very limited narrative of addiction which means that a lot of people don't get the help and treatment that they need. Mm. And that, that and because denial is such a key part of addiction, they, we kid ourselves and tell ourselves a story. I'm all right. I'm fine. I'm functioning. And you were very high functioning, but white knuckling it, dry drunking. Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I'm guessing your, <laughs> your next question might be, so what is the pain? And that's the bit I don't really know the answer to. Not really, no. When I've talked, as I have at length, to my psychiatrist, David Sturgeon, who I see less than I used to, because I think I am in a better place now. You sound calm. Yeah, but when I was, when I was seeing him regularly, like quite a lot, when I realised from 2005, probably for about a decade or so, when I realised I had to really, really work at trying to get to the bottom of all this. And I think he felt there must be something I was holding back. There was some sort of dark secret in my childhood or something I'd done or whatever. No, the two things that get closest to it, but I don't think they are it, 
but I think they are part of it. One is that my dad, who I said was a vet, had a very bad accident when I was about 10, or a bit younger. And as a result, we had to move from Yorkshire to Leicester, okay? Because he changed his career to adapt to the fact that physically he was very different than what he was before in terms of his strength and fitness. And he wasn't like paralyzed or anything like that. It's just that it was a, it was a big accident and it took quite a long time to recover. And he felt he couldn't do the 24-7 work of being a, a country vet. He, so he joined the Ministry of Agriculture and became a, a government vet. And it was much more calm and nine to five and all that stuff. And I think that move troubled me because I felt that I was dislocated physically, emotionally. It's quite interesting, my obsession with Burnley Football Club, who, by the way, have just lost 5-2 to Sheffield United. I'm sure you don't care, but I do. Um, I care. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll swear with you okay, if you like. Fine. Fuckers. 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 Um, and the further away I've ever moved from the north, the, the, the stronger this pull, which I expressed through the football, feels. I don't have any family up there at all because we all moved. And my parents were both Scottish. They had no roots there. It was just that that's where we were all born, myself, my two brothers and my sister. And there's only me and my sister left now. And so I think that was part of it. Then the other one that comes to mind as a possible, but by the time this happened, I was already, I think, descending into problem alcohol in my teens, frankly. And when I was about 18, my eldest brother, Donald, was in the army, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Now, that was definitely the point at which I became utterly fascinated by mental ill health. But I think also it was like a huge thing for me, obviously for him, changed his life, but also for me and for the whole family. And I think a part of my life has always been, I get these moments of imposter syndrome. I get moments where I think, you know, what have I done to deserve the life that I've had and the experiences I get, the career that I've had, when Donald got booted out of the army for having schizophrenia and then didn't really have the sort of life that I've had. And I, he had an amazing life on many levels, especially considering his condition. I remember at his funeral, there were so many people there who, he, you know, he had loads of really good friends. He was a great musician. He had a lot going for him. He died of respiratory failure, but that's partly because of the drugs he was on for 40 odd years. But apart from that, I can remember again when I was about seven, on the, the island where my dad came from, where we used to go on holiday every summer, Tyree. And I can remember there being this great drama going on because somebody who lived up the road was being sectioned and taken away. And he was a crofter. And I remember the police and the ambulance being there and going to get this guy off his tractor. And he was driving the tractor with his daughter on his lap and they had to take the daughter away. And, and I remember being absolutely fascinated by that. But the thing that when, when I'd been to kind of sessions where I talked to people about, so for example, I did a documentary for the BBC and there was this guy called Ian Roulier who I interviewed, who was on this psilocybin uh, course, Me and My Depression, it was called. And Ian was on this hallucinogenics treatment. Anyway, so I interviewed him about it and I watched him under the effect and all this sort of stuff. When he told me his childhood, it was just so horrific about the level of abuse that he suffered at the hands of his father and all sorts of other stuff. It was just really, really terrible. And you can sort of go, well, yeah, well, I completely get why you get really, really bad depression. I don't have anything like that. As a therapist, I think we're always comparing our insides with other people. 
people's insides and then what happens to them is incredibly unhelpful. Yeah. And also, we're born with this cocktail of genetic predisposition, environment, supporting connection and what happens to us and how that creates fault lines or protective factors that enable us to be resilient or vulnerable to the kind of brickbacks of life. Mm. I mean, I may have got this wrong, and I've never met you before, but what I've understood is that that early uprooting from where you belonged, where you felt safe, where you knew where you were from and what you were doing and what you were about, and that your father was strong, with a purpose and meaning and doing something that had real, mm. you could see the value it was, to a place where you were alien. And I would imagine that feeling of uprootedness would bring you fear. Mm. And that fear then destabilizes the different core identities that we all have of who I am and am I of worth or am I not of worth and am I in danger because I'm outside the tribe or am I safe because I'm inside the tribe? Mm. And that can grow subtly inside us, can't it, as a disturbance. And then with your brother's diagnosis, that was a massive loss and trauma, I think, along with your dad's accident, that all of you in the family experienced. Mm. And the whole family system probably got tilted on its mm. axis, including your mum, who was then coping with her husband, who is no longer mm. the same, although functioning, and her son, who she must have been incredibly worried about. Mm. So that the safety you felt in your body and in your mind and around your kitchen table didn't feel as safe. Mm. And then what I find interesting is you go into roles that literally throw you into danger <laughs> every minute of every day. Yeah, yeah. Politics. Yeah. I think it's interesting, for example, that when you ask the question, that's the first thing I raised. Yeah. Um, now, maybe I've rationalised that over time. I don't know. The other thing that fits that theme in a way is that growing up, I always felt 100% Scottish as a child because of my parents, because of the fact that I love Scotland, because of the fact that I learned the bagpipes, because of the fact that my dad was a Gaelic speaker. So I felt very Scottish in England. But the minute we went to Scotland, we were seen a bit as outsiders because my parents had left Scotland and because we were growing up with English accents. So I think there was a propensity to sort of uprootedness anyway. It's interesting, for example, that I'm not a member of any clubs. The idea of going to the House of Lords just fills me with absolute dread. I couldn't, I've turned it down several times. I just couldn't do it. And I think it's, it's this sort of insider-outsider thing that I've, the Labour Party, isn't that, that is not a club? Well, at the moment, I'm out of that. Um, no, I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier. I think the Labour Party is the, the vehicle that I saw as the, as the best vehicle mm. to, to make the change in the world that I believe in. And I still actually feel that. I think there are other ways of doing it. Mm. Uh, but I think if you're talking about politics, I think that's still the best way to do it if you're British. So, for example, when we did move to Leicester, I mean, I remember once I got called in to see the head teacher because the teachers had complained. We had a school uniform, which I always wore, and it was a black jacket, a white shirt, and a, and a tie. And I always wore it. I wasn't rebellious like that. However, I also always wore my Burnley scarf and a blue anorak. <laughs> and, I ne and, and I never took it off. Now, that is obviously me saying I don't belong here. 
and being very defiant about that. Yeah. Um, now, what that says about anything else, I just, I just don't know. But there is a link about belonging, isn't there, that you're kind of getting at? Yeah. And feeling alienated, feeling outside in some way. Yeah. And, and by the way, not always wanting to be accepted is the other thing. Look, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously, quotes part of the establishment because I've worked for the government and I've worked in positions that are very establishment positions. But I think I've still got a pretty strong anti-establishment streak. I mean, I'll give you another example that I don't know what this says either, but I find it impossible to congratulate people when they get an honour, including really close friends that get Sir this and MBE, OBE this. I just think it's such bullshit. And I can't, I can't kind of surmount that. I can't get over it. It sort of disgusts you. It kind of does. And it, it's back to this thing about being anti-hierarchical. And what was extraordinary was that when I was working at Downey Street, Part of my job as the Prime Minister's official spokesman, my job was to brief the media on the honours list and have to sit there and say how marvellous it was that 16% were of black and ethnic minority and more teachers than ever and da-da-da. Listen, I'm not a killjoy, so I get the fact that it gives a lot of meaning and purpose and pleasure to lots of other people. But to me, I've always felt it's part of the cementing of this kind of very class-based hierarchical structure that I don't think has done Britain that much good. And I think if you look at where we are now with Brexit and all that stuff and, and the kind of horrors of the right wing and the rhetoric of the, these people on the right and so forth, I think we're still living with this massive overhang of an inability to let go of the idea that we have this, this great empire around the world and we're world-beating at everything. We're not anymore. And, you know, live with it and get on with your life. And wake up to the reality that, that we're actually living yeah, exactly. There's a rhythm to my depressions, but they're not, there's not necessarily a, an obvious rhyme or reason. There is a rhythm. Tell me the rhythm. Well, the rhythm is that I can go for quite long periods feeling 100% okay most of the time. Like talking to me now, you feel very vibrant, alive, connected. I'd say at the moment, I'd say on my, on my kind of depression scale, which goes from utterly manic and out of control here to suicide here, okay, I would say I'm about there at the moment today. So that's pretty good. That's a pretty good place. My, my, my favourite place is about there. A little bit more up and a little bit more energy and a little bit more drive and, and then I get out and I do loads and loads of stuff. Give you an example. I mean, I agreed to do this today, but actually I think partly, I don't know this, I haven't rationalised it, but I think partly I'd said to myself I was actually going to go out this afternoon and buy a few things for Christmas, right? Because I, I hate doing anything last minute. Mm. You like order. I think this is all part of me putting that off because I don't actually feel like going out. So that's the rhythm is that I, I'll go up and down on that scale. And you don't know what sets you off. So there aren't environmental things that you know... I mean, I know you do a lot of exercise like cold water swimming and your bikes and cycling and running, and that must stabilise you. Yeah, well, swimming every day at the moment, cold water swimming. Proper workout a couple of times a week. I do walk a lot, just going around the place, uh, music. Um, I've got loads and loads of different things I do to, to trees, yeah. And I forget, I, I, I think like a lot of depressives, I forget when I have been depressed. But, but I was talking to Fiona about it last night and she was saying that 
I say it's been a while since I was talking about actually I was having a medication review and I was said so before I went I said when was the last time I had a really bad one it's ages ago wasn't it? she said no it was about five weeks ago I remember that you told us on your brilliant podcast which we will talk about but but you have a kind of mind blank not a mind blank but it always feels once I'm through it as I get through it I get quite I don't think it's manic, but I get very positive and very energetic and I feel great. I'm here then. Once I'm through it, it's kind of gone. So like, for example, when I wrote my novel about depression, All in the Mind, it's the only time in my life when I've been sitting there and, God, I wish I was fucking depressed. I want to be depressed because I can't remember what it feels like. I can't describe <laughs> it. And I had to sort of, you know, and of course, it's like, it's like watching the kettle boil, isn't it? You know, it, I actually wondered whether that the cure for depression is to say, I'm desperate to be depressed. Make me depressed, for fuck's sake. Doesn't happen. <laughs> Some triggers, for example, ho- the start of holidays are always very tricky for me. Lack of sleep and overwork. Is that stopping the busyness of working? Well, it's or it's thinking that you should when you're not as well. That can happen to me. I can go on holiday and feel to go on holiday and sort of write a book or... And then I think tiredness for me is a really big thing. I've really got to watch that. If I get very, if I get physically and mentally tired, that can tip. And the external environment. I mean, I've got to say, I know people use the word, oh God, it's so depressing in, in the wrong way. But sometimes I will say about the state of the world, God, it's so depressing. And, and I literally mean that. It is. When Johnson was prime minister, I mean, I think some people thought I was a little bit obsessed, but it really did have an effect on me. I, I felt sick at the idea that he was the prime minister. Yeah, and so angry and powerless. Well, the other thing is, I'll tell you the other thing that's a big part of my problems, I think, and this is something I have talked about my, with my psychiatrist, is that I might feel powerless a lot of the time, but the, 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 a, a, a particular problem that somebody like me has is that an awful lot of people think I have power. Yes, and even more so since the success of your podcast because you have so many listens and yeah but i when i described that that sort of plunge that i had when i was talking up in scotland mm. um the one that you mentioned i am convinced that's what triggered it it was a, it was a guy in the audience who said listen i love your podcast you and Roy stewart you obviously agree about more than you disagree about. you have a responsibility to start a new party or you have a responsibility to get back if people want you to be prime minister don't they well some do but it's like but you feel this responsibility but i also feel an inability yeah to step right into the fray in a way that I can't control. I, at the moment, I feel I have control of my life. But is the stepping into it, is that some of the imposter syndrome? No, it's not that. I don't think it's the imposter syndrome. I think it's the feeling that I do what I do now, and I did what I did. In doing what I did, I think I came very close to losing my mind again. That's terrifying. Well, it's yeah. Listen, it's fine because I got through it. I, I mean, I did lose my mind in 1986. There's no doubt about that. But then I think what was happening in 2005 was was, was getting to that point. And so now, look, I think I probably could go and do some big job, go back into the political front line. I think I could do that. But at the same time, I'm thinking, why risk it when there are other people who can do it mm. and are doing it, and also when you can make a difference in a different way. So that's that's maybe me just making a logical case for my own indolence. But actually, I think there's truth in it. If your purpose on this planet is to leave the world a better place than when you were born, and all of what you did, the jobs that you had and the roles that you did, led 
to this podcast, The Rest is Politics, and with Rory, his history led to what he did. Maybe you can shape the world and have more influence through that than being a politician. No, I don't buy that. Okay. I think we can have a lot of fun. I think we can have success. Yeah. I think we can interest and amuse people, and I think we can help to shape the debate. And I think the best thing we've done is to show people that it's possible to have a debate that's serious and sensible and lots and lots of people want to be part of it. But I don't kid myself that ultimately, if you really, really want to change the world, you, you have to have political power or you have to have financial power. No, you can campaign and you can make a difference. And I would say on the mental health stuff, but it's not the same as being able to say, I am the Chancellor of the Exchequer and today I'm announcing that we're building an entire new network of psychiatric institutions around the country because we need to meet the need. That's power. Yeah. You can only really get that when you're in elected politics. The other thing that came through and still comes through on the rare occasions I still see David Sturgeon is this conflict. I think this is we identified as maybe a source of the pain as well, is that I live in a constant conflict between the concept of self and service. I don't mean selfish in, in the kind of conventional sense, but I'm, you know, I'm quite self-centered. I'm quite, I've got quite my opinion of myself. I think that my opinions matter. And I also want to have a good life. Okay. So I'm, that's the self bit. And I want to do what I do in the way that I do it. I don't want to be told by other people how to do it. And at the same time, I am driven by a sense of duty and service to others. And Fiona will say that one of the worst things about my time with working with Tony Blair is that if any time of day or night something needed to be done to help and facilitate the project on which we were working, I felt I had to do it. And I still feel that now if, I, if I'm engaged in something. Um, that is a kind of permanent conflict. But could I reframe that conflict? Yeah. Because I don't think they're necessarily in opposition. No, they might not be. I think if you, you can accommodate all of that. You can. So it's an and and an and and an and that I mind about myself and my life and the quality of my life and believe I have opinions that are worthy of listening to. I believe that there's a role for me to play in, the, in service and duty for the things that I believe in and that I, I have a part to play in my life and all of it's never kind of equal or simple but they can sit side by side sometimes they bump into each other but they are what makes you whole okay they're not divided chunks that one has to overcome the other one no but i think if i was absolutely driven by the sense of duty and service absolutely driven by it there's no way that i would live the life i lead now it's the self bit that stops me doing the things that people like that guy in Scotland want me to do. But that is a complete misrepresentation of how we operate as human beings. Well, maybe. You can't spend and cost yourself out of the equation in what you're doing. The two are entirely interconnected and interlinked, like the mind-body is one unit. You can't cut yourself out of the doing you. No, but the choices that you make, I have made a choice to live the life that I live, knowing that there are other choices I could have made, which I think would have put the tilt or the balance more into the duty service space. Maybe conflict's the wrong word, but it's a sort of, it's an equation that I'm... It's a tension. Yeah, it's a tension. It's a tension that runs through me all the time. 
all the time. And I think it explains, for example, why I'm not very good at having a good time. Being on holiday when you have a breakdown, for instance. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a part of me that thinks that we all worry too much about having a good time as opposed to having a good world. I mean, I would really like to do a bit of therapy on where that comes from, because that must be your childhood. Really? You'd have thought. I mean, your belief system about holidays and work ethic and all of that, those those values come from one's childhood, don't they? Mm. It's a lovely example. My parents, they, they threw parties and they used to have these big kind of gatherings and you know I, I i'm just not i'm not that sort of person i'm i didn't really enjoy birthday parties as a child and i don't enjoy them now no didn't like the attention don't know i didn't no i'm, I'm talking not just about my birthday parties but about any birthday parties i just thought why do we do this all the time you know every weekend seems to be another bloody birthday party <laughs> <laughs> i do like people I, I like finding out about people like getting to know people or like observing people, like talking with people. But I'll tell you what I'm not good. I'm not good in situations where everybody is meant to feel the same thing. Weddings, New Year, Christmas. That's the outsider in you. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think it is. I think it is, you know. Or even something like the even something like the when there's a big football tournament on. I remember, you know, recently in the Euros, I, and this partly is back to the Scottish English thing. World Cup order, yeah. Yeah, whatever. It's like, you know, when suddenly people have got no interest in football at all, suddenly they, they, they feel they have to express an interest in whether Alan Shearer's playing well or, you know, they don't care. So shut up. Just, you know, don't get bulldozed into feeling you have to have a view because it's the thing that everybody at that point has a view on. I guess it's about wanting your own space, really. And a, a tension between belonging and being a part of, but also being your own person and allowing yourself to be your own person. Mm. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel uneasy, whether it's a career change, loss of a loved one, or a new relationship. Our emotions can certainly leave us feeling overwhelmed. As a psychotherapist, I'm all about finding solutions, but it can certainly be tough to work them out on your own. Therapists are trained to help you get to the root of your emotions and can help you build productive coping mechanisms. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's not only affordable, but can be done in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash therapyworks. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash therapyworks. Can we talk about your son and alcoholism and addiction? Yes, the reason why I kind of relate that to the other challenge, my own challenge, is because I feel that it was worse in a way to see it happening, but also I don't think I handle it very well. I remember once having a conversation with a friend of mine who was saying, oh, I've got this, we've got this nightmare with Callum. He just, you know, he's clearly got a drink problem, won't face up to it, da 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 And I remember this friend of mine, who's he's quite a well-known person, but he, he, he said, well, yeah, but it's great because you've got the experience. You know what he's going through and, and therefore you can help more than most people would. 
And I found that this wasn't the case. I found that I was saying and doing all the things that people used to say and do to me that made it worse. You know, stop drinking. You don't have to do that. Why don't you stay in? So interesting that, isn't it? <laughs> and no, look, I think both Fiona and I were in, were in our own way incredibly supportive. And I, I think Callum recognises that. But I think it was probably the most difficult period of my life, actually. Even worse than my own breakdown. Because the, the thing about my own breakdown is that I think that was worse for Fiona than it was for me in a way. I was away with the fairies, you know. Whereas with Callum, he was in this very, very vulnerable state. I actually don't think there's anything much worse than seeing your children suffer. I think that is one of the most unbearable things in life mm. and why often we say the wrong things because we so desperately want it to stop and so we can't let them be who they are and suffer in the way they need to. Yeah, and both Fiona and I are the sort of people who we see a problem, we want to fix it. Yeah. And we're quite good at it. We're quite good at fixing problems. Fiona, both emotionally and practically, me more in the emotion. I'm not a practical person, but I'm a very, I can see a situation. I'm good in a crisis. I can grip things and I can change things. But something like that, as you say, you want to do the right thing. You want to change them. But I tell you, it was again, I, I was seeing David a lot during that period because it was so grim. And he said a couple of things that were, really helpful and really insightful the first was he said you can't change another person you can only change yourself and your attitude to that person which actually was difficult but it was useful and then the second thing he said he re they reached a point where we kept giving Callum warnings and ultimatums but then when push came to shove we didn't really deliver on them and he said you've really got to do the tough tough love that one yeah he said you've got mm. to do that if you don't do that this is going to end a disaster and I said, but hold on, what if he arrives home completely smashed out of his brain and I refuse to let him in the house and he wanders off and he falls in the canal and he dies? And, he, and, and David said, well, he might, he might, and you won't be there, but you can't be there 24 hours a day. And my point is you are feeding the addiction by giving him warnings, giving him ultimatums and then not seeing them through. So one night, a few days later, we're lying in bed, middle of the night, doorbell goes, go downstairs, Callum, lost his keys, lost his wallet, drunk, and I just didn't let him in. God, that must have been one of the hardest things you've ever done. It was, incredibly hard, incredibly hard. And who knows whether he, we, we've got a good relationship, he's not touched wood, he's not had a drink for almost a decade now. Wow. Was that his turning point? Was that his rock bottom when you didn't let him in? No, no, it <laughs> Wasn't that simple? How, why, how could it ever be? No, the rock bottom came not long afterwards, actually, not long afterwards, but it came when he, he got into a bit of trouble at work. He realised, he, he, he put it this way, he reached the point of realising, and we'd had this place lined up. He'd been to a rehab place in Ireland, which didn't work. Well, I say it didn't work, but, it, you know, it, it just, it, he came back and... It, he wasn't ready or whatever. No, no. We had this other place. Somebody had recommended this place in Scotland. And um, he went there. It was very difficult at first. He wouldn't cooperate. He was breaking all the rules and all that stuff. But, you know. I'm not an alcoholic. He stuck with it. Yeah. And and they're not handling it right. And they don't know what they're doing and all that stuff. But eventually, I think he found a couple of people in there that he really liked and that he trusted. And, and he's not had a drink since. Wow. So, no. And again, as with my drink, you know, 
I think like all of us, whatever it is that made us drink in the first place and made us want to kind of obliterate ourselves, that's what you have to kind of dig deeper on. And I think if you've been in those sort of situations, you probably do it for the rest of your life in different ways. So today, asking you that question, dealing with having a predisposition or having a kind of inclination to be an addict, you have to deal with that sometimes more on some days, but like today, it's a tougher day. For me. And is that what you want people to realise, that it's not over? No, look, I'm not that bothered what people realise or don't realise about me. What I think I can do quite usefully is speak about this kind of stuff so that other people can think it might relate to them, particularly those who are refusing to recognise they might have a problem. Because unless you recognise a problem, you're never going to help yourself with it. What you don't face, you can't fix, right? Yeah, exactly. What You know, it's like... Sorry to keep banging on about Brexit, but it is so evident that Brexit is going very badly wrong, right? And yet the politicians refuse to acknowledge that. Well, they're not going to fix it. You're not going to fix this Northern Ireland protocol until you recognise it's a problem. You're not going to fix the trade deals, the trade range with Europe, unless you recognise that it's doing damage. And the problem with their addiction is it damages the whole country. Yeah, I think I think it's about forcing yourself as an individual to... And listen, we don't we don't get it right. You you you're a therapist. I could talk to you. You could come to some conclusion. I could see somebody else tomorrow who would have a different conclusion. Yeah. You might somebody else who might ask me the question you ask me in a different way, and I'll need to give them a different answer. You have a different conclusion. True. In the end, it's a kind of never ending process where you have to yeah. just try and work things out. And I think that is right. But the key, what you do that I guess keeps you on that spectrum that you can bring yourself back nearer the middle Mm. is to support yourself through the process and be aware of what your process is yeah and work on it so it sounds like from your breakdown in the 80s to the one in 2005 you basically shut it down screwed the lid and hoped that it was going to go away but since then and that's many years 17 years you've kind of recognized this is something you have to deal with all the time and face and some days are good, some days are bad. But you have to find ways of supporting yourself. Exactly. So what are the things that support you? So if you can feel yourself tilting, do you have to go through it? Or are there things that you can protect you and pull you back a bit? I can often pull myself back, and often I can't. So I don't think you have to go through it. I think, I mean, I have a sense of my own relationship with my depression now. So when I know it's going to be bad, I really feel it very strongly. I feel I feel this kind of physical presence somewhere up there coming towards me. Malevolent. I describe it as a horrible dark jelly and it's going to come into my veins and it's just going to flood out all the energy. It just dragged me down. and I used to try and fight it off and now I don't. I just think, okay, let's, you know. So that's at the bad scale. Can I just check with the not fighting it off? In some ways, it's the paradoxical theory of change. If you accept it and allow it to come through you, it then goes through you whereas if you kind of battle against it it grips you for longer Mm. what i found is that when i was battling against it i was doing it in various different ways so i would do it by denying it so if somebody said you don't look yourself today what's wrong i say nothing's wrong absolutely nothing whereas now i say i feel like shit so honest i would busy myself but with stuff which i now recognize probably made it worse yeah and it became like I could push it away for a little while, but eventually it was kind of going to get me. 
they're rarer now. What happens more now? And I, I met this wonderful woman in Canada who, I, I, this is the centerpiece of the documentary, was this jam jar concept that she gave me, which is basically that you, you have to see your life as a jam jar, which is a mixture of genes at the bottom and then your life experience. And if, if it gets out of control, the jam jar explodes and you're ill. And instead of undoing all the stuff in the jam jar, your life... Which you can't undo. Which you know can help you. Yeah, okay. So my jam jar now includes... I, I, you know, and I have it in my head all the time. And I've actually physically got a jam jar. That's amazing. But in fact, you can probably see it it's behind me. We can share it on the show notes, can't we? I've seen it on your on YouTube. But you, it's a long. It looks a bit like a willy. That's, that's the drawing. <laughs> that's exactly what it looks like. So... So mine goes FFF, which is Fiona Family Friends Relationships, nice. MA, yeah. Meaningful Activity, nice. which is Work and Change the World. Yeah. Um, then I go my fundamental sleep diet exercise. The four pillars of equilibrium. Yeah. And then I, uh, by, and by the way, they're things I never used to take seriously, ever. Oh, really? Exercise was a waste of time. Sleep was a waste of time. And who, Like you sleep when you die. Yeah. What, what can you achieve when you're asleep? Nothing. That's what, that was my kind of thinking, which helped lead to the breakdown in the 80s. And then I go into what I call the really personal stuff. So that's, you know, Burnley Football Club, bagpipes, my dog, my bike. Then I've got music, music, not the news, uh, books, not newspapers. So if I'm depressed, I don't listen to the news. No, nor do I. But I will read a book. And then I'm into the thematic stuff, creativity, curiosity. I love all this. And so anyway, it goes on like that. Can I see the picture? I just love this so much. It should be as posters around the world. <laughs> Hold on. It should, seriously. I'm drawing it as you write. I've got the Fs. Friends, family, Fiona. There you go. There it is. Can you see it? Yeah, I've got, I can see it. It does literally look like a willy. I know. It was very accidental. Friends, Fiona, family, friends, meaning and purpose. Pillars, I call it pillars, sleep, exercise. Sleep, exercise, diet, Burnley Football Club, music, bagpipes, creativity, curiosity, David, and medication. And then down here are the things that I add. Tree of the day. So these are these are, these are are additions since I've done it. Tree of the day, the dog, sky, my, my bite. Oh, and landscapes. That's fantastic. I've also added the German language in recent weeks. Because I used to speak fluent German and I lost it. And during COVID, I got it back again. Amazing. So now you read German newspapers. So now, if if I'm so if I'm dipping, if I'm dipping, I will sometimes get this out, and I'll look at it and think, right, what can I do that speaks to Fiona family friends being a priority? So it might be just I just do something nice, meaningful activity. I'll try and do some work, sleep. If I feel tired, I'll go to bed. Diet, don't drink, don't eat shit, eat lots of fruit, drink lots of water. Exercise, even if I feel like mm. not good leaving the house, I can go. I've got a bike, an exercise bike there. I just do half an hour there. Uh, music, playing music, listening to music, creativity. I write every day. Curiosity. That's about just constantly telling yourself, I need to learn something today that I didn't know yesterday. And I try and do one of them, at least something related to all of these. That's so brilliant. I'd love a photograph of it that we could put on the on the notes. Yeah, sure. I can do that. I've taken up nearly an hour of your very precious time. Very precious. <laughs> do you want to talk about your podcast? Are you loving it? I I do enjoy it. I mean, I'm I'm not a I don't get massively excited about work things. Really? 
That is not my take on you. But when you say, do I enjoy it? This goes back to the thing about, look, I'm, I'm very competitive. So when I agreed to do it and then and got and, and had the idea of getting Rory involved and then realised that there could something quite good was happening here. And you bloody did it. Number one today. It's top three episodes in the country this week. Unbloody believable. Yeah. But what I like about it is that, because I think the thing is with, we haven't really talked about this, but I've, I definitely have a kind of relevance issue. Okay. And I think the media kid themselves if they think that they kind of run the world and they control the world. They have, they, they have a lot of influence. So I'm not pretending that a podcast can transform British political life. But I think we can have an impact. We can have an influence. And I like that. I, I enjoy the fact of it. I enjoy the fact that it makes me, so for example, recording. I know this week that we're recording on Tuesday. So I will spend part of tomorrow thinking through what are the things we should talk about? What do I need to read? What research should I do? You know, is there something a bit offbeat? that Gives you structure and purpose. And it, may, and it gives me the excuse that means that if I'm sort of scrolling through social media or watching the news, I'm not just doing it to pass the time. I'm doing it because I'm sort of trying to work out. What the hell's going on? So I give myself the excuse that it's going to work. And I think the other thing it does, it makes you, the feedback we get from listeners is incredible. They give you really great. Somebody sent me a thing to read today. It was actually about mental health and stigma, which I've just been sitting around all morning reading. I, I really have enjoyed it. And, and it's just become a kind of, a little bit of a new lease of life. I've never had anything, even even at the height of my kind of political life with Tony Blair, when because I was always either with him and he was the main guy, or I was trying to do things that got me out of that for a bit, like go abroad or go to football, whatever it might be. But this with this podcast, I promise you, I was on the tube the other day, in the carriage, three people came up and said they were listening to the podcast on the way to work in the same carriage. That's amazing. I mean, and then and walking around Hampstead Heath, love the podcast, love the podcast. That is unbelievable. So as much as you say work isn't what excites you, something like that. No, you said you must be really enjoying it. I don't see it as, it's back to the point, you know, I don't see it as being about enjoyment. I do, I, I do enjoy it. But that's kind of not the point. I don't do it because I want to enjoy it. I do it because I think it's quite a good thing to do and it might have an impact somewhere. Yeah. So I'm writing a book at the moment. Funny enough, I was starting to write before the podcast came along. Uh, and it's the title, the working title is, But What Can I Do? It's a kind of guide to politics for the powerless. That's fantastic. Yeah, so I think it's in that space that I think the podcast is hitting a mark. It's, it's obviously people who are interested in politics, but we get loads of feedback from people who say actually they, they, they've latched onto it because they feel it explains politics to them in a way they, they'd never really understood. That's what I hear from everybody. So let's just say some young woman is listening to it aged 18 and thinks, I've never thought about politics, but you know what, I do that. And then they end up being prime minister in 30 years. That'd be great, as long as they're Labour. Of course. <laughs> don't want really, to really bloody don't really Tory prime ministers. Not enough of them. Thank you so much. Will you send me a picture? I'm glad we got it together. And, and of your willy. <laughs> no. Not your willy. I didn't really mean to say that. The jar. <laughs> the, do you mean the real jar or that? You mean this? That. Yeah. The, the picture of your jar. Fine. Cool. I'll do that. I really, really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. And can I please just say thank you for all that you're doing for the mental health space? Oh, thank you. 
Thank you very, very much. Lovely to meet you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. I am very interested to hear your response to Alistair Campbell. I think one of the things I find really interesting, and I'm very grateful for his openness in explaining this, is that it's so interesting when we can't nail down the reason for pain or the reason for depression, that there isn't a life-altering event or an adverse childhood experience. Yeah. And I think that's quite common. I don't know what you thought about that. For me, it really brought up the question that I think everyone has, like, do I have a right to be unhappy? Do I have the right to feel what I feel? And this idea that my feelings of depression or anxiety or my experience of addiction is somehow not as valid because my experience has not been as terrible as somebody else. Is there this hierarchy of deservingness in mental health? I'm not allowed to struggle because nothing really terrible has happened to me. So it's, you feel what you feel and what you feel is real and valid. And I think as humans, we aren't this neat equation of this experience plus this temperament equals therefore depression or this experience plus this experience, even if it's a really awful one. Also, we're not equations. And I think the more that you can allow yourself to acknowledge that your feelings are valid, regardless of what your experience has been, the more likely you are to be able to feel better. To legitimise what you feel. Yeah. So we obviously all took note of that as a thing, because I did as well. He was obviously talking about addiction and distraction and, and all the different ways that we use to distract ourselves away from the pain that we feel. And that sometimes, funny enough, it can be harder to choose to confront what it is that's wrong or that you're not happy because you think it's not legitimate, because you can't explain it to yourself, because you feel like there are not enough bad things have happened to you to justify how you feel. And I was thinking about that. Me and you, Mum, do you remember we went to a self-compassion talk with Christina Neff, who's a really Mm. great self-compassion person. And I really remember her saying, often people think self-compassion is like getting off the hook or is indulgent or, and actually what all the research shows is self-compassion is linked to taking responsibility for what you do and feel. What does that mean though? Say more. Well, in the sense that if you're suffering, right, if you're feeling depressed or if you're feeling angry or traumatised, By being self-compassionate, it actually leads to behaviours and actions that take responsibility for the impact of how you feel and what you do in the world. So by being kind to yourself, you're more likely to acknowledge your own role in behaviour and outcomes. So, for example, for me as a parent, I just lost my temper with my child. And instead of saying, I'm a terrible mother, if I say to myself... I am extremely tired and I am trying my best. And sometimes I don't do exactly what I would like to do, but I am doing my Mm. best and I love my child, that I'm more likely to be able to ghost my child and say, I'm really sorry. 
mum, I lost it. Whereas if I said I'm a terrible mother, then I maybe just go into this spiral. Is that what you mean? Exactly that. It's that same thing that when we feel really ashamed of something, then we want to push it away, right? We don't want it to be seen. Whereas if we feel self-compassionate towards it, then we can own it and go, "Mm, I'm really tired. I really get why I lost my temper then. And it wasn't great. Yeah. I think that's really true about self-compassion. And I mean, all the research, as as Sophie says, is very compelling that when we turn to ourselves with kindness and understanding, we actually feel better. So in that way, it's improving our outcomes. And it isn't like letting ourselves off the hook. There's quite a lot of debate in the field about depression, whether it's diagnosis that comes from lack of serotonin, which you need medication for, or whether it's a way of disconnection and feeling pain, and that depression is the expression of the pain. And I think to link what you were saying, we're both as different on the inside as we look on the outside. So it's extremely difficult to kind of nail these things down. But what I really learned from Alistair, and I hope people listening will learn, is that it's recognising your own version of it. His is like he could feel the drumbeat of this malevolent force coming towards him. And he now has this jar of things that he does that help sometimes put it at bay and sometimes push it right back. And other times it has to come through him. But I thought the message for everyone is that you have to understand and work out what works for you in your own depression, even if you don't legitimise what the source of it is. Yeah. You know, when you say jar, everyone is thinking Willie. <laughs> yes, that was very funny. <laughs> and but also it was genius, it wasn't it? It was genius. You don't need to know the causes of why you feel what you feel to learn and become aware of what helps you when they are, those feelings are there, right? It can help. But you can also have a whole bunch of strategies without really knowing why you get depressed. And that's equipping yourself, isn't it? I really liked how wide ranging his jam jar was, like from exercise through to music. It was a really like broad spectrum of self-care, which I thought was great. One of the other things I thought, well, I thought of Avas when, Mum, you said in the interview, you think there's nothing more painful than watching your children suffer. But now we're three generations, so there's you with us and then also us with our own children And I certainly echoed that feeling of watching someone you love suffer because you're so powerless. It is one of the things that makes it quite excruciating. And I think as a parent, you're still at the stage. I mean, you can't always protect your children from suffering, but often you can sort out the squabble with a school friend or go and talk to the teacher or pick them up and put them on your lap and soothe them or say sorry if you've done a moment of not excellent parenting. What's agony and has been agony and will go on being agony for me as a parent of adult children is that sense of, in some ways, I feel attached to you like you're a child, but I know that you're an adult. So I'm, I don't have any of the tools available that I used to have. So I feel even more powerless, but actually as equally attached as I used to. So it's for myself, I think one of the things that led to maybe bad parenting or not quite being as present as I'd like to have been is because I did find it so difficult witnessing and being with each of you at different times when you've suffered. And you'd have thought with me as a therapist, I'd be really good at that. And I'm not terrible at it, but I think there were limits of what I could bear to be a part of or be present in because it just upset me so much. 
I'm laughing then. So it wasn't really, it's not even funny. And I think what is so difficult for parents or partners or when you are with somebody who you really, really love and they are in pain is that I think what happens is the more painful it is for you to witness someone being in pain, the more you do the things that are less helpful. So I see parents do this all the time and I'm sure I do it myself, which is just jump to the how can we fix this problem? Exactly what you were saying to Alistair, that it's so unbearable to see your child, teenager, adult child, partner, whoever in pain, that you think of all the things that might make it better. And actually, what is usually of most value is is bearing witness and, and being there. And I think you can do that as an adult, a parent to adult children, as well as younger children. So I think the feeling is of powerlessness, but I don't think you actually are powerless because I think there is power in that and being able to tolerate that. Very wise. I think that is wise. I think what's difficult in that is that the level of pain is so much greater than the sense of agency or capacity that I've been able to, in bearing witness, is enough. It just doesn't feel enough. And all of you have been quite ill in different ways at different times. And I have, I've just had to sit with you and I, I think I have sat with you, but it's awful. So I think two things about that. I think one is that it is helpful to consciously remind yourself that being with somebody in pain is doing something. It doesn't feel like you're doing anything. And also it feels awful. So it feels the opposite of doing something. So I think if you can remind yourself that containing somebody else's pain is powerful. I think one of the interesting things about that was also Alice's reflection about when to let go. So one of the hardest things was the tough love part, right? Mm. So there's also the bearing witness, but there's also in the powerless, there's some needs to be acknowledgement of what you don't have control of. And that is incredibly hard, but is it really worth interrogation, I guess? You know, that thing, like mum, you were saying, you know, it's, it's so hard to be there. And then also there's, it's so hard not to be there. And that when you want to fix, you keep going back in and going back in, trying to maybe make it better when actually that can be the least helpful thing to do. That's true. Like when to let go. But knowing when's that time. Ultimately, they're adults now, right? Then they're responsible for their own lives. We're responsible for our own lives, even if we make bad decisions that cause us pain, mum. But that, as a parent, I'm sure I'll feel the same. And I've actually written a whole chapter about it in This Two Shall Pass, which is about letting your adult children be adult children and that when we don't kind of recognise the boundary of our limits as an adult parent to an adult child, we encourage them to be codependent and we have to let them make their decisions and take responsibility for themselves. And it's really hard to do when we love so much because emotion overcomes the head thinking that you know what you should do. And so I guess it's a moving in and moving out and it never feels tidy or simple. And, and that's where therapy can be helpful, right? It's someone who's not in the thick of the pain and in the thick of the relationship that can help you think about those things like he talked about it with a psychiatrist, didn't he? I loved listening to him talk. He's a very fascinating person to listen to because feels very authentic and interesting I also really fundamentally disagree that you have to hold the reins of power to make change happen that you have to be the purse strings of the exchequer in order to make policy change because I think there are so many ways that you can make 
fundamental change from a grassroots place. And even as a therapist, I actually, I think one thing that I have learned most that has surprised me most about being a child psychotherapist is how much advocacy is such a massive part of my job, um, which honestly had never really occurred to me, when, which was maybe naive. But when I was doing the training, that the advocacy part doesn't come naturally to me and it isn't something I had really thought about. And then I started this job at Yale with lots of children in the care system and such an essential part wasn't just what we did in the room, but also working with social workers, working with schools, helping them think about a child's experience, helping them think about a child's needs and how big a difference that that can make, even if it's just sort of working with one social worker, one school at a time. I think you can do sort of fundamental change with small micro changes. Yeah. Change one life, you change the world, right? One of the things that I thought he was very interesting on was about class and privilege. And it's something I think quite a lot about, but the that so often in mental health, we think of mental health as within the individual. That's such a kind of Western paradigm isn't it of sort of wellness being somehow in you and therefore if you're not okay that somehow something is wrong with you and in you and it's quite reflected actually in the jam jar stuff that Alistair has is that actually what makes us well is a really porous conversation between us and our environment right it doesn't just sit in you we're like a an exchange between what's around us and our insides and that's where the micro level of what you eat for breakfast and a sort of macro level of do you live in a very violent community where you're constantly at threat every time you walk out your front door and that I think sometimes it can be quite unhelpful when we overlocate our well-being within ourselves and forget about with mental health how powerful systemic forces are in our well-being because it makes people feel like a failure or they're at fault sort of actually looking up afterwards and I think and in the UK socioeconomic status and mental ill health with working class people in the lowest 20% of the income bracket are up to three times more likely to develop a mental health problem. So these are like big factors in well-being that can get really underplayed. We can talk too much about what you individually do and not enough about what surrounds you and what your environment is. And I think there is a paradigm, it may be more American, but I think it is here too, that everyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But actually, if you're born into poverty and systemic deprivation, you don't have bootstraps to pull yourself up on. And as you said, what you eat affects your capacity to learn, where you go to school, your social connection and networks, your possibility of going to university. All of your outcomes are very economically biased by just the luck of the draw of what you're born into. Right. And then also representation, that sort of also comes down to representation, right? Like if you see the people running the country all went to Eton and are white, then you don't think, oh, like that's something that I could do. It doesn't sort of enter your head. So I think there's just so many different levels of it because then your own version of your own potential is impacted too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not just to make people feel like if they have those environmental capacities that there's nothing they can do about it. But it's just sort of in a way, it's another doorway to self-compassion to go, it's actually really hard doing what I'm trying to do. There are real limitations that make this harder. I think that's a really good place to end, isn't it? To be self-compassionate and legitimise what we feel. And not say that it's, it's me feeling that there's something wrong with me, but to recognise all the inputs that affect 
how we are and where we are in the world and to be as kind to ourselves as we can, whatever we're feeling, whatever our place. So thank you. So we have to end it there. Thank you both so much. And a particular thank you to Alistair Campbell for a really brilliant conversation. If you have family, friends or colleagues that you think would benefit from this podcast, do please share the link. And also please remember to subscribe, rate and review so that more people can benefit from this conversation as well as you. Till next week. Bye.